Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a major retrospective of one of the most important artists of the 20th century, Brazil's Elio Oidesica. My first guest is Lynn Zelovansky, who has co-curated Elio Oidesica to Organize Delirium. It's at Pittsburgh's Carnegie Museum of Art, where Zelovansky is the director, through January 2nd, 2017. She was joined in the project by Whitney Museum of American Art curators Elizabeth Sussman and Donna DeSalvo, and James Rondo and Anne Catherine Broadbeck of the Art Institute of Chicago. The exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for $75. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Oidesica, who grew up in and began his career in Brazil before living in New York in the 1970s, explored painting, film, sculpture, and installation, often with work that included political messages or undertones at a time when Brazil fell under a military dictatorship. This exhibition is the most thorough Oidesica survey ever presented in the United States. On the second segment, curator Brian Scholas discusses his new exhibition, The Lexington Camera Club and Its Community, 1954 to 1974, which is on view at the Cincinnati Art Museum through January 1st, 2017. The show looks at a Kentucky camera club that spawned some of the smartest and most experimental photography in America. Among the best-known figures associated with the group are Van Deren Koch and Ralph Eugene Meatyard. The outstanding exhibition catalog, one of those designed to be read rather than to make your coffee table look good, features an essay by John Jeremiah Sullivan and was published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for 45 bucks. Don't miss it. One quick note. Along with Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957 at the Wexner Center for the Arts, and The Uses of Photography, Art, Politics, and the Reinvention of a Medium at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, Scholas's exhibition in Cincinnati is one of three ongoing American museum explorations of different models of how artists come together to teach, learn, and make work. Fitting all these exhibitions in one show is a bit much, so those other exhibitions will be featured on an upcoming Man Podcast. But first, Lynn Zelovansky, after the break. We've got a live show to announce. Please join Eduardo Bezwaldo and me at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden on November 4th at 6.30 p.m. Bezwaldo has been a regular on the international ennial circuit in recent years, exhibiting at biennials in Montevideo, Lyon, Venice, and more. The Hirshhorn recently acquired Bezwaldo's 2012 sculpture, The End of Ending, an enormous, nearly room-filling installation that combines sculpture with staging and a certain psychological presence. It's on view in the museum now. Eduardo Bezwaldo live at Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, Friday, November 4th at 6.30 p.m. Hope to see you there. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Cause, Where the End Starts, a major survey exhibition of the work of the Brooklyn-based artist, organized by modern curator Andrea Carnes in close collaboration with the artist. Featuring key paintings, sculptures, drawings, toys, and street art interventions, this exhibition examines Cause's prolific career in depth, revealing critical aspects of his formal, conceptual, and collaborative developments over the last 20 years. On view in Fort Worth through January 22nd. Also, Focus, Lorna Simpson, opening at the Modern on November 19th. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, 
opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. We're back. Lynn Zelovansky, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I think Elio Oidesica is well-known in the U.S., and most of our listeners have seen one or two pieces in, in collection installations at museums or bite-sized shows at commercial galleries. But unless they were in Houston or at the Tate in 2006, they haven't seen anything quite like the show you've put together. Um, like you know, A lot of work, a lot of context in one place. Or if they were in Minneapolis at the Walker in 1992. Yeah, going back even further, right? You know, so I, I suspect listeners maybe don't know a ton about the Brazil that informed Oidesica in his career, which may inform how we think about Oidesica's work. So why don't we start with Brazil in the 1950s and kind of the cultural conservatism of the place? What was the condition of Brazil as a young Oidesica is coming of age? Well, it's interesting that you talk about the cultural conservatism because I suppose you could speak of the cultural conservatism of the United States at that time, too. You definitely could, actually. I mean, it would have been impossible for the abstract expressionists until you got Greenberg and Rosenberg to get a decent review, you know, from anyone. And in Brazil, there was also a very progressive, very ambitious, very sophisticated art world. And a very strong tradition of geometric abstraction. What was the political situation in in late 50s, early 60s Brazil? Well, the political situation was that there was a democracy. I mean, Brazil has had a, a sketchy sort of, I don't know if sketchy is the right word, but a lot, a lot of ups and downs and a fair amount of dictatorships over the course of its history. It had some period of time with democracy, and then in 1964, they they had a, a military dictatorship again. So we're gonna we're gonna come to 1964 and how the rise of that military dictatorship coincides with some big events in Oidesica's career. I guess let's start with with the first works in the show then, which are I don't know the kind of geometric abstractions that are familiar to South American abstract painting and sculpture of the time, paintings on board, paintings on paper. And they begin to diverge at least somewhat from the predominant South American modernism around 1960 or so when Oidesica takes them off of the wall and out of two dimensions and they become three-dimensional. Right. 1959 really is the year when they sort of, and you can, I always feel that as you watch, he he's very young when he first begins to show his work. It's, you know, the show starts in 1955. So he's 17 years old, almost 18 years old when he has his first exhibition or participates in his first exhibition. And as the work moves forward, I think you can see the geometric forms almost struggling against the grid that they're in. It's like they really want to leave that two-dimensional plane. And so in around 1958-59, they just sort of fly off the plane. There's a period in there, too, when he's working with reliefs of different kinds. Do we know why he or what prompted him to give up two dimensions to to bring the third dimension into play? Yeah, I think I think like artists in many places 
at that point in time, comes from an intellectual family. He's a big reader. He's been involved in ideas and philosophy since he was quite young. He's reading phenomenology. He's reading existentialism. I think Merleau-Ponty has a, an impact on him. That whole notion that perception can be precognitive, it's before your mind, that your body can perceive something is a really important idea for him at that point. And so he, he wants to make work that shares the physical space with the viewer. And so when he makes works that hang from the ceiling and you have to walk around them in order to really perceive them and fully understand them, that is the beginning of, of, that, of an expression of that concern for him. There's a great picture in the catalog of one of Oitasika's 1960 so-called nucleus pieces, and I think it's hanging on a wall, but what's certainly happen, it, happening is that there are six children arrayed around and below it, and they're looking up at the thing like they can quite hardly believe that they can look up and inside something hanging off a wall. <laughs> right. It's actually not hanging off the wall. It's actually, it's in all of those different pieces are hanging from strings from the ceiling. So it, it actually is suspended. Well, that's kind of a, a good transition to the Hunting Dogs Project, which is kind of the first major result of these three-dimensional nucleus piece, pieces. Am I right? Are they in farming the Hunting Dogs Project? And what is the Hunting Dogs Project? Okay, well, there's actually what he calls a penetrable. PN1, the first penetrable, comes before in 1960, but Hunting Dogs is, comes in very early 1961. So penetrables for him are architecturally scaled works that people can enter and experience with their whole bodies. Hunting Dogs is a very, very important work. And actually when Oitesika does his, the only major retrospective he has in his lifetime, a museum show at the Whitechapel Gallery in London in 69, he he really kind of begins the show. Number one on the checklist is Hunting Dogs. And I think that's because Hunting Dogs is the is the first really full expression of so many of the forms and the concerns that will occupy him for the rest of his life. So, and what it looks like is it looks like an excavation site. Like it looks like it, it is the excavation of an ancient city, but it's all in kind of modernist form. And it, it contains five penetrables, which are the, it's a public park in the shape of a labyrinth. And it contains five penetrables, and two of them are labyrinths, and the other three have parts of them that can be moved and rotated, and everything can be entered. And most of the penetrables are for private experiences, but the there are the larger one can be, you know, can hold several people at a time. And there's this is also the first time that he deals with collaboration, which is a very, very important part of his work for the rest of his life. And he he includes in Hunting Dogs 
two projects. One is a kind of theater, which he builds for a man named Ronaldo Jardim, who is an experimental theater director. And the other is a very important work called Buried Poem by the poet and critic Ferrara Goulart, where you have to go downstairs and into a chamber. And there is, in that chamber, there is a, a group of nesting boxes. There's a red one, and inside the red one is a green one, and inside the green one is a white one, and on the bottom of the white one is the word rejuvenesa, which means rejuvenate. And it was Goulart's attempt to make a poem that somebody would experience with their whole body. So I don't think you can underestimate the impact of a work like that, which was first conceptualized in 1958 on Oitasika. So one of the penetrables is is in your show in, in Pittsburgh when, when, when people are in, and it's about, I don't know, seven and a half, eight feet tall. Oitasika made them big enough to literally walk into them. Um, that was the idea. Can people do that in Pittsburgh? You can't walk into that particular penetrable. That is PN1, and that's the first penetrable. And it is at this early stage also, Oitasika is very involved with the idea of color. And he, what he really wants to do is give color its own physical, independent physical reality, its own physical being. And so this PN1 has very bright walls that are orange and yellow and and which the viewer can manipulate. Unfortunately, we can't enter that piece anymore. But there are all there are other penetrables. There are several installation works, including Tropicalia and Infiltro and Rijan Vieira and Eden, that have penetrables as part of them. Yeah, we will get to those. So the Hunting Dogs Project, as I understand it, is present in the show in model form. It it only ever existed in model form. And that was gonna be my question. Did 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 Oitasika intend to to build this, have a patron lined up for it, or was it kind of a conceptual exercise? No, it was a conceptual exercise, or I don't know if you'd call it conceptual exactly, but it wasn't this was before he ever thought that he would be able to actually build something life size. So this was it, it was it was an idea. We have Oitasika barely into his career, and already he is mashing up ideas that are kind of traditionally different things. Painting, the use of color, architecture, and, and really kind of even landscape architecture in a way. Did he realize he was doing that? And was that melding of disciplines, if you will, intentional in that way? He certainly realized it. He was, when he did Hunting Dogs, so it's 1960, so he's 23 years, 1961, he's 24 years old. And they show, he gets a show of Hunting Dogs at the Museum of Modern Art in Rio. And two of the most important intellectual figures in Brazil, Mario Pedroso and Ferrar Goulart, both proclaim this work as kind of as sui generis, some a new form of art that can't be categorized that doesn't fall into any of these traditional forms. Earlier, you mentioned that in 1964, a military dictatorship takes over Brazil. And this coincides with an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in Rio in which Oitasika was scheduled to participate. How does the rise of the military dictatorship and that exhibition kind of come together-ish, and what impact would that have on Oitasika and his work? 
Well, 64 is a really important year for Oitazika. It is the, the advent of the military dictatorship, and many of us will remember that the 60s, 70s, into the 80s, there were some pretty brutal dictatorships in South America. Brazilians will tell you that theirs was not was bad, but it wasn't as bad as the Argentines' dictatorship. 64, though, when it comes in, it isn't as bad as it becomes. But still, it's a dictatorship, and it's not welcomed by people like Oitasika. His father dies that year, and that is the first year that he, he goes to the favela in Mangueira. And he goes there because it has a great samba school, and he wants to learn to dance. And so he becomes very, very committed to that activity, and he becomes eventually a lead samba dancer. And he makes one of the other, we haven't dealt with all the different forms of his art, and it's interesting that he worked with his father, who, who was an, a specialist in butterflies and moths at the Natural History Museum, cataloging those creatures. And that sort of form of categorizing things, that sort of quasi-scientific form of taxonomy really stays with him, and he, he adopts it for his own work. So he has all these different sort of classes of objects. One of the things that he invents is the parangale. And the parangale is an object to be carried or worn. And it is, and often it has like uh, many layers in these early years. And it, it can have either poetic or political statements buried within the layers. So the parangale only exists at art when the person who wears it is in motion. So you can see how it functions. And, and, by, and uh, let me jump in real quick. By political statements, you mean literal words. Yeah, yeah. I embody revolt, for example. Or sex and violence is what I like. <laughs> you know, things like that. <laughs> and these are multi-layer garment type things. And like you said, as people move, the layers either become revealed on their own or the person wearing the object can choose to reveal the layers as and when and where he or she wishes. Right. And, and he gave them to many people to wear including good friends of his and, and who were often members of the intellectual class and also the people who lived in the favela and the samba dancers. So we have many pictures of all of that. And so the show I think you're referring to is Opinion or Opinion 65. It was actually 1965. And it's a show that he's invited to participate in at the Museum of Modern Art in Rio and he brings all of his friends from the favela wearing the parangoles to the museum, and the museum refuses to let him in with his friends. And so they take to the garden outside of the, outside of the museum, and they dance and have a big celebration out there. That was apparently a great success. Is that event the beginning of Oitasika's, or what would become anyway, or what ended up being Oitasika's lifelong, to be polite, suspicion of museums and related institutions? <laughs> well, he had actually, I think, at some point he said, the museum is the world. You know, this is not my, you know, museums are not restricted to these buildings. And I think he may have said that before this happened. You know, when he, he's always been from the time he's very young, he's always been very interested in the margins of society. 
And so he's, you know, this is, it makes sense for him as well to, to think about the idea that art can be completely integrated. I mean, to be committed really to the idea that art is completely integrated with daily life. So that's 64 and, and, and 65. Kind of the next major thing that Oidesika makes is a work you mentioned earlier. It's called Tropicalia or Tropicalia. It's a piece that is related to the Nucleus works and, I don't know, I guess takes off from them. I, I guess how does Oidesika build upon them for Tropicalia and how have you been able to present it in Pittsburgh? Tropicalia is, it's a very appealing, you know, it's really interesting in Brazil because often, I mean, I'm, it's true of the music also that the tunes can be very lilting and very almost soothing and the words can be extremely critical, you know, and that is, I, in a way, there's a parallel to Tropicalia, the, the sculpture, Oitasika makes this work in 1967, and it is composed of two penetrables, which you can enter, and they're on a on a bed of sand with that have lots of plants in plastic containers, and there are two parrots, and it's a kind of satirical would make it seem lighter than it actually is. That's not quite the right word. It's a, it's a critical portrait of. Brazil as a tropical paradise, the sort of cliche of Brazil as a tropical paradise, and Rio in particular. And it's the first of a series of portraits that he does of, of Rio and of Brazil. So you, one of those penetrables is, so you walk through these paths and... Paths of sand, I think, right? Uh, the, the paths are actually gravel and they're surrounded by this sand landscape. So it's like the beautiful beaches and the squalid favelas because the penetrables are really based on and inspired by favela architecture, by that kind of makeshift architecture. And along the way, there are poems written on objects. And this is, again, his his desire to collaborate. He, he collaborates on this piece with the poet Roberta Salgado. And um, so her poems are scattered around in different on different rocks and tiles and things like that. And then you come across these two parrots. In Oidesika's day, they were giant macaws that were chained to a perch. We don't treat animals like that anymore. It's not quite acceptable. So we worked with the aviary to, they recommended a place where we could work with two rescue parrots that have a commodious cage that is within the installation of Wojtasika. Their names are Amy and Rika, and we all delight in visiting them daily. So people can walk into it? They cannot walk into the cage, but they can walk into the into the penetrables. Uh, one of them has a sack full of herbs that smell from the from the Amazon and that have a wonderful odor. And you sort of you make your way into a rather claustrophobic labyrinth and at the end of it is a television set that is playing in a way that is feels pretty aggressive when you're in there and that's important the other one is a much simpler structure and it just has the words in portuguese purity is myth so i'm hoping listeners are are getting um, an idea that that started to move into three dimensions around 1960 or so with you know things that are, were one or two feet wide and two or three feet high. 
and that now as we get into the mid to late 60s the th- these objects are getting bigger and bigger you know they, they they were the size of one or two or three human bodies and now these are you know things for people to walk through and that extend outside of an architectural space and that include birds <laughs> you know we're getting toward a more total idea of her oitasika is getting to a more total idea of an environment right and 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 while I, what I would say also about this moment in time is that while that very rigorous sense of geometry that and form that's always with him never leaves him, at this point in time the social issues begin to take precedence. They're the thing that you see first when you look at the works. How so? Well, I think, for example, the the notion of color, which is just completely subsumes everything, in and it's just totally. It's exquisite, and you're kind of bathed in it in the very first part of the show. By the time you get to Tropicalia, it's not color does color. There's color in the work, but it doesn't exist, and it isn't the main subject of the work. You know, the color is in the sort of indigenous, inexpensive prints that are on the outside of the um, of the penetrables, for example. So the objects look less refined. And they're more of a real reference to, to the favela architecture. My guest is Lynn Zelovansky. We'll be right back after a break. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall. Explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Yves Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly. Delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry. Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew. And examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts or search for it in your favorite podcast player. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Degas A New Vision the most significant international survey of the work of Edgar Degas in nearly 30 years. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, assembled from public and private collections around the world. Opens October 16th exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org Degas for more. The exhibition How Should We Live? Propositions for the Modern Interior is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Explore how modern design shapes domestic interiors, with over 200 objects to enjoy, including furniture and textiles, and fully recreated environments like Greet Lihotsky's Frankfurt Kitchen and Lily Reich and Mies van der Rohe's Velvet Silk Cafe. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And now back to my conversation with Lynn Zelovansky. As, as we get to the end of the 1960s, and as Oida is engaging these ideas around the favelas and around Brazilian uh, life and politics more and more, ironically or coincidentally, or maybe both, he's beginning to attract international attention. And in 1969, he has an opportunity to do something uh, even bigger in London, and he calls it Eden, and it's at the White Chapel. So it's, I, I guess the work is called Eden, and the show is known as the White Chapel Experiment. Did he just have an opportunity to go bigger and, and reveled in it, or is there a little more to it than, than what he does um, with Eden? 
Well, I think, first of all, that the idea that he got international attention, it's true, he does get some some international attention, but I think it's largely the work of one person, and that's Guy Brett. A British art critic. Yeah, who was a very young critic, I believe, at the London Times at that point, and the London Times sent him to the Sao Paulo Biennale one year, and that's how he became connected with uh, Oitacica and Leisha Clark and other artists, other Brazilian artists. So he was a great advocate uh, for Oitacica and for the others. And he originally, there's a very fascinating gallery that was an artist-run space called Signals Gallery in London. And originally Oitacica's show was supposed to be there, but Signals closed before the show could happen. And so that... Guy Brett was able to help get the show to the Whitechapel Gallery. So what is Eden? It's, 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 I keep asking you what is questions simply because it's kind of hard not to, given the work. We'll have lots of images on manpodcast.com, but, but these, are, th- these are objects for which there is no clear reference in, in, say, the American late modern and early contemporary tradition. So, so what is Eden? <laughs> First of all, Eden is enormous, and we're very fortunate at the Carnegie that we have. We have the Hall of Sculpture, which is a huge space, which allows us to give Eden the kind of space that it needs and deserves. And also, we have the rare opportunity because of the way that um, the Hall of where the, the place where the Hall of Sculpture is situated, we can look at it from overhead which is something I've never done before in it. It's a really amazing experience. I mean, I feel like I understand the piece so much better for having watched it be created from above. I think I should say a few words about Tropicalia, a few more words about Tropicalia. Tropicalia is the name Tropicalia after the piece. Caetano Veloso, the great Brazilian musician, has a song that is very much concerned with the same ideas that Oitacica's installation Tropicalia is concerned with. And they have a mutual friend, and Veloso is looking for a name for this, this song, and the friend suggests Tropicalia, and he feels odd taking a name that belongs to another artist, but ultimately he decides to do that. And that song becomes a kind of anthem against the dictatorship. And it also becomes a movement in all of the arts. And it also signifies a kind of political position that is both very much against the dictatorship and also against a kind of cultural isolationism that exists on the left as well. So I think that that's really important. Initially, Oitazika is delighted, he's thrilled that this whole idea of Tropicalia has taken over and that it's it's become so pervasive. And then after a while, he becomes disillusioned with it. He feels it's become a trope. He feels it's become a cliche. So when he has the opportunity to make a new piece that is extremely large, <laughs> he wants to make it a piece without obvious references. He says without images. And so so that it won't be quite so easy maybe to to use in in ways that he doesn't approve of. And so Eden is that piece and it is this enormous space and it is covered with sand and it's got water as well and it has many different spaces that you can occupy. 
And it's predicated on an idea that he has developed called cray leisure. And what he wants more than anything is to be able to share the exhilaration of that moment of creativity with the viewer. And so what he, who he has now begun to call the participator. So he has all of these different experiences, and he believes also the cray leisure means that you need leisure in order to be able to create. And so he wants to create those spaces for people where they can relax and rest and, and be creative. And so these are all different kinds of spaces that people can walk through and lie in. There's a, a Caetano and Gilles tent uh, so that's Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil, where you can wear headphones and listen to their music. There's a beautiful round pavilion of sorts. You can walk over ground rocks. You can walk in or lie down in straw. You can sit in in this kind of one of his nests, one of his rectangular structures and read pulp fiction that's there. So he has all of these different experiences, and he wants to encourage people to spend as much time in this installation as they, as they want to. In, in, in the original iteration at the White Chapel, he even had a snooker table. Well, actually, the snooker table, is a, it was, there was a snooker table at the White Chapel, but the White Chapel wasn't just Eden. The White Chapel contains, it's really a retrospective that starts with hunting dogs. And so the snooker table was originally done, I believe, in 65, the snooker room in Rio. And uh, so he, he does, and, it, and it's, based, it's based on on Van Gogh's night cafe. And so it's got red walls. And it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't part of Eden. It was just also in the show. You mentioned nests as being in Eden and... Oedesica would go on to make these pieces called nests in other contexts. For example, he participates in Keniston McShine's big 1970 conceptualism exhibition at MoMA called Information, um, a show which has kind of gone down as, you know, been remembered as kind of the big rollout for kind of the transition of minimalism into, into other places, which we now call conceptualism. We'll have a link, actually, to the show's archive on MoMA's website. You can download the catalog, see installation shots, including Oedesica's nests. Nests were related to to some of what you talked about in Eden, you know, places for people to, to go and, 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 and just hang out. They also take up a lot of space. So how have you chosen to represent them in the show? So we have the original sort of nascent nests that were part of Eden called Ninos, which are in Eden. And then we have documentation of the nests in, in he does, I'm trying to remember where he is in, in England, but he's teaching in England and he has the students create nests and then fill them with things. He shows them at the Museum of Modern Art in information, as you said, and then he takes them and he installs them in his house in New York, because he's moved to New York. He lives on 2nd Avenue and 7th Street, I believe. And he he just fills his loft with the nests. And so people can come and they can, and the nests have like sort of transparent fabric around them. And you, you know, many people come and they stay there. They're the site of a lot of the films and the photography that he does while he lives in New York. 
and they're they're like a I guess they're kind of like his his stage set in a sense for his various performances. So he's adding in a sense interior design to his already extant explorations of architecture, landscape architecture, excavation. Does he find these to be different disciplines or is it all just kind of part of the soup he's exploring? I believe it's all part of the soup he's exploring. I don't think he would even think of it as interior design. I just I would just say I think that there's situations to be lived all of them. So by the time he gets to filter project for Vergara, he's making an object that, you know, it's 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 I guess now we would call it installation art. I think it's a lot harder to find a context for it in, in 1972. It's also a pretty different thing. What, you know, again, sorry, what is what is Filter Project? And does his em- embrace of, of media, such as televisions, mark kind of a significant directional change or interest? You know, he has a television in Tropicalia. So he's already beginning to think that way. But I think that that the nature of mass culture in the United States is very different from what was in Brazil at that time. And I think he's really pretty fascinated by it. So certainly the use of all of the radios and and television and all of that that are in Filtro is a reflection of that. Filtro is, I, I should start by saying in New York, he gets to New York and the color kinds of kind of falls away from his work. And I believe that that's because he believed that color was a cliche of Latin American art, bright color. And the last thing he wants to do is be seen as what he calls folkloric. And so he pretty much gets rid of color. And the big exception to that is is Filtro, because Filtro is not made for New York, it's made for Brazil. It's a work that he sends back to Brazil that his friend Carlos Vergara will build for him to his specifications for a show that he's doing in Brazil. And it's, again, it's a portrait of Brazil, and it's a it's a really angry portrait of Brazil. So there's the color is harsh and glaring. It isn't like as as beautiful as the early color. It's blue, orange, yellow, and green plastic through which light moves and and looks, I don't know, they're kind of cubicles with these plastic, huge plastic panels making up walls. Right. And you and you move through it. It's a labyrinth. It's it, You keep expecting it to end. It ends up being much bigger than you think it is. And you encounter, you know, you encounter the noise of, of fluorescent lights buzzing. You hear Gertrude Stein and Geraldo de Campos reading from their books. You, you know, you encounter radios and it's always set to a local state station. You get radios and television and, and a lot of different kinds of light, you know, pink light and blue light. So, and of course the light that comes off of the colored plastic. So, so it's, it's, and, and at the end, as you come toward the end, there's an orange juice machine and you can pour yourself a glass of orange juice. And in my essay, I say that's color taken internally. So, so it's that it filtro is the only, you know, major built work that he creates in New York. He conceptualizes a lot of work, but it's the, it's the one that gets built. 
he makes other kinds of works. He makes a lot of films. He's always got a camera when he's in New York. Makes a lot of films. He creates parangoles and photographs friends and lovers in the parangoles. You know, he's working all the time. He's doing a lot of writing. But this is the one thing that gets at this one thing that's actually built that he that is realized. You mentioned film a moment ago. When when Oida Sika gets to New York, at some point in the early 1970s, he enrolls in film classes at, at NYU. What does that result in? What does he get out of those film classes? What how, how does he migrate what he takes out of those film classes into into what comes next? Well, he he's very involved with both film, what he calls quasi-cinema, which is it's slideshows, which he really is interested in. I think because they can be moved around and changed and slides can be put in different orders. And he's very interested in, he gets, and he gets more and more interested in the idea of things being in constant development while he's in New York. So the slides are very important, but he speaks of the films also in a very similar way. And he makes several different kinds of films. He makes, he makes kind of home movies type of, of films where he's just shooting and not editing at all. And one is the last day of the film, Fillmore East. And the other one that we're showing is a gay pride parade in Central Park. And he also makes scripted, scripted films. And so, and the one that we're showing, which actually was shown in Brazil during his lifetime is called Agrippina is Rome, Manhattan. And it's shot down in the Wall Street area and it's silent and so that's, you know, that, and then he makes various kinds of slide shows and slide presentations. Oida Sika's work of this kind of mid to late 70s period is sometimes considered to be a bit of a chaotic jumble. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, some of it written. Is that to some extent a reflection of, I don't know, the chaos of Oida Sika's own existence in New York? It's hard to say. I think probably it is to a certain extent. I mean, you know, there's the a lot of drugs going on and, and uh, you know, he's always lived a fairly wild life. I think it's, but I think also that he he's interested in different things when he's in New York. His world changes and he changes with it. And so he sees New York, he calls New York Babylon. He sees New York as this very, very different place from Rio. So I think... I think it's, you know, it's a combination of, of things. He's doing a huge amount of writing, huge. I mean, he's always been, he's always written a lot. And in New York, you could make the argument that his writing is the most important aspect of what he's mm -hmm. doing there. And some of that's in the show. Yeah, and it's interesting because we're still kind of tinkering with the show. And as I sat down with my colleagues at the, from the Art Institute of Chicago and the Whitney, and we thought about how do we show this this work, this this written work. It's in four languages, and it's some of it's visual poetry, and some of it is has footnotes, and some of it is lists of things, and some of it is outlines. And how do you how do you show this to people? And so we took a couple of section, a number of sections from this, not a couple, but maybe ten different sections, and we. And we sort of did a, an explanation of what they were. We worked with a, a man named Fred Coelho, who's done most of the work on Oitasika's writing. And, uh, and we came up with descriptions and explanations and, and hopefully a way for people to begin to look at this work. But what we found is that although you can, you know, you can do that kind of thing, 
it doesn't give you any sense of the scale of the ambition of the work. And so we're, we're about to just paper the walls with more pages, which will still only be a fraction of the amount of writing that he did while he was there. And he had a publisher, and then at a certain point he realizes that he'll never publish the work, that he doesn't really want to because he loves the idea that it's constantly changing and constantly developing. I should mention that the Art Institute and the Whitney are the uh, two places the show goes after it's at, it's at the Carnegie. That's correct. They are our partners in crime. In 1978, Oitasika goes back to Brazil. Why? That is a question that everybody always asks. What we have found is, I mean, he, he really resisted going back to Brazil. And yet at that point, you know, he'd been illegal in the States for many years. He had very little money. He had a huge drug problem. He was, his family and friends really wanted him back in, in Brazil. What we found, however, also was that he couldn't get a green card. He kept trying to get a green card. And what we found also was that he was harassed by immigration in the United States for his sexuality, for his gayness. And they, he was eventually just pretty much kicked out. And so he went back to Brazil in 1978. He, he dies in 1980 as, as the result of a stroke. But he, he makes work at the age of just 43, I think. Uh, actually, not even. Not even 43. I'm not very good at math. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was it was his 40, he, it would have been his 43rd birthday, but he didn't live that long into the year. You're very kind to bail me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but he does make some work in Brazil. What does he, what does he make in Brazil? And I guess it hadn't really been exhibited in a kind of a dedicated, separate from what he'd done in New York kind of way until now. And, and, and so what do you, you learn by doing that? Right. What this show does that no other show has done, I think, is to really look at both New York and his return to Brazil as discrete periods and important periods in his work rather than just showing a piece from there. You see the Cosmococcus fairly often from New York, but you don't really get a whole picture of what was done in New York. So I think this show does that in a kind of unique way. And the same with, with the return to Rio. So he he returns to Rio and he has and he has this amazing efflorescence. He's he has this amazing rejuvenation, this renaissance and he he builds things and he gets off drugs at least for a, a period of time. And he you can see in the pictures he puts on weight, he looks so much better. Uh, he's exercising and going to the beach. He's back at Mangera and he's dancing. And he's he's making penetrables and he's making performances, and it is really a one. He's very happy and it's a wonderful time for him. And he doesn't want to think about the past at all. He says he just wants to think about the future. And unfortunately, that future was never to be. He passes away in in, in 1980, and 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 the story ends there in in, in the obvious way. There's kind of a second tragedy, and that's in 2009, when a, a fire uh, in Brazil destroys much of Oitacica's work. What did the fire take out, and, and what did that, I don't know, force you to do, if that's the right phrase, with the related work in the show? The fire took out a great deal, some of which can never be represented. What we've done in the show, and, and the family, I have to say, they've worked very hard to 
to try to to create uh, reconstructions of things. They had very good photography, very good imagery of all different kinds, and and of course, Oitasika de- documented everything he did like crazy. So, what we have done in the show is we've we've taken we've borrowed whatever works we could borrow that were in other collections and we've shown those and anything that survived the fire and those works are in the show we have some reconstructions of Belize's because the original Belize's that we have in the Belize's are the boxes and the glass pieces that he did in the 60s that are filled with with uh, organic materials and are meant to be handled kind of related to his father's career as you mentioned earlier kind of a natural history reference yeah so he we have several of the original works but they can't be handled so we have reconstructions that our gallery ambassadors can handle and show people how they can how they can participate with them and we have we have exhibition copies of the parangoles and i think you know you can take a fair amount of license with the installation works they're meant to be reconstructed he did it himself at the white chapel so uh so that seems pretty clear so that's that's pretty much the way that we've we've handled it also i would say with his writings the writings themselves were destroyed but we're very fortunate that there were you know high definition copies of everything so that we can just show them as you know we just tack them up on the wall and they're exposed because they're not originals, but they're, you know, they you get a very good sense of what he was doing. Marvelous. Lynn Zelovansky, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It was a pleasure. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents The Uses of Photography, Art, Politics, and the Reinvention of a Medium at its La Jolla location, from September 24th through January 2nd, 2017. This exhibition examines a network of artists based in San Diego between the late 1960s and mid-1980s, whose experiments with photography opened the medium to a profusion of new strategies and subjects. These artists sought artistic media and formats adequate to address their turbulent era and its pressing questions. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hershorn. Visit hershorn.si.edu for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Brian Scholas, whose new show, The Lexington Camera Club and Its Community, 1954-1974, is on view at the Cincinnati Art Museum through January 1st of next year. The show's catalog, which was published by Yale University Press, is really good. It features a strong historical essay from Scholas, as well as an essay by John Jeremiah Sullivan. Don't miss it. Brian Scholas, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Uh, let's start with Ralph Eugene Meteard, who is often portrayed or remembered, as you write in your catalog essay, as a kind of backwoods folk hero. Your show is significantly about regrounding his work in a certain cosmopolitan context and in elevating his partners in that effort. What is that context? 
Ralph Eugene Meatyard moved to Lexington, Kentucky around 1950, and in the middle part of the 1950s joined the Lexington Camera Club. It was an amateur association of photographers that had been running for almost two decades at that point, and it gave him a network of friends and peers who, like him, held day jobs, but also were passionate photographers who were out shooting on nights and weekends. In fact, they would often go out together. He was mentored uh, soon after he joined the club by a, a man named Van Deren Koch, whom art historians know better as a photog uh, photography curator and a photography historian. And the two of them together would go out and shoot. And so the narrative around Ralph Eugene Meatyard's work, partly due to the strangeness of his pictures and the strangeness of his photographic vision, tends to kind of portray him as a, an isolated genius, uh, as I write a backwards folk hero. While his photography is certainly unique, it grows out of a conversation with a dozen or more people who are active in and around Lexington, Kentucky during the 1950s and 1960s. And it's not only photographers, but also writers, printmakers, and other artists who are passing through the city or spending time at the university. So you mentioned that the Lexington Camera Club was founded by Van Deren Koch, who, as I recall, founded the University of New Mexico Art Museum and went on to be a photography curator at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. How, when, and why did, did Van Deren Koch start this thing, this club? Well, he didn't actually uh, start it himself. He joined a few years after it was founded in the 1930s by a University of Kentucky professor. And it was a very, very decidedly kind of amateur affair, akin to more uh, usual camera clubs with assignments for the members. And uh, they put together little exhibitions in hotel ballrooms and things like that throughout the 1930s. But Coke was the member was a member of a well-to-do family in Lexington. They owned the largest hardware store in town and picked up an interest in photography early in his life. He was handed a camera at age 11 or 12 and, and became enamored of the instrument. And due to his being a man of relative means or a boy of relative means, he was able to travel and get to know other photographers. In the 1930s, while still a teenager, he makes it out to California and meets Edward Weston. So when he does link up with the camera club in the 1940s, he becomes a sort of de facto leader. He's bringing news in from the outside world of photography, sharing prints that he had collected or purchased from the photographers he was meeting, and pushing a, a very specific visual agenda that I think leads the Lexington Camera Club to be relatively unique among uh, camera clubs in the United States. Unlike a lot of other clubs, he was very much emphasizing photography as a creative pursuit, an expression of your individual self. It was not necessarily meant to be a documentary medium, but an artistic one on a par with painting. And that vision is what I think allowed the Lexington Camera Club members throughout the 40s and the early 1950s to begin to explore their own avenues for artistic growth and to toy around with um, ideas drawn from other modernist art forms, such as literature. It's probably worth noting here that other camera clubs then, and, and really to this day, were often more interested in things like technical perfection and process rather than conceptual motivation. That's true. And my exhibition is not necessarily a complete history of the camera club, which itself ranged from 1936 to the early 1970s. Instead, it focuses on the two-decade period of 1954 to 1974 because that is the period, I think, that we can look back on from the vantage point of 2016 and see its members as being most in line with what we today understand as art photography. That they're moving away from 
documentary, process-oriented, assignment-based photographic experiments toward the strange, woolly, interesting experimental practices that I have found so compelling in my several years of research on this exhibition. The men who kind of gathered at the club and around Coke were uh, pretty much all hobbyists. Who, who, who were they? From what backgrounds did they come? They were all professionals, I guess you could say, in Lexington, and some younger, younger people who were maybe affiliated with the university or were students and had an interest in photography. We should note that the University of Kentucky is in Lexington. And to give you a few examples, you know, Meatyard himself worked at an optician's shop. Coke was in the family hardware business. Another person who came to the club in the mid-1950s and who's a, re a remarkable photographer is Cranston Ritchie, who worked uh, as a machine operator at Butler's Printing. Bob May, who later taught photography during the 1950s, was the staff photographer for the University of Kentucky's Agriculture Department. So they all had jobs that kept them busy during the week, and they would gather together for their meetings on the first Thursday of every month to discuss their prints and go out shooting on the weekends. You have a great story in the book about how the Lexington Camera Club conducted its meetings a little more formally with a little bit more order than, say, other American or Canadian camera clubs. They did. They met on the first Thursday of every month in a room in the Fine Arts Building of the University of Kentucky. So in a way, even the location of their meetings gives us some hint or understanding of their aspirations. They're not necessarily meeting in someone's office in the off hours. Each of the members uh, would bring in anywhere from three to five prints, and everybody would be given little slips of paper with a kind of score sheet. Uh, they'd all vote, and the top five prints of the month, so to speak, would be uh, selected for uh, deeper and uh, more engaged conversation. So they would spend you know, an hour or two talking about the merits and demerits of each of these chosen prints in a, in a slightly formal manner, akin to a crit session that we might think of at an MFA program in the 21st century. But then, of course, they would all retire to a, a local bar or uh, go out for a meal afterwards, and I'm sure the conversation got a little less formal at that point. You mentioned a moment ago some of the men who, and they were pretty much all men, who, who gathered around the club. Let's start with Koch's era. Who were a couple of the, the major figures who, who were both active then and, and play a significant role in your show? Well, so there's Van Deren Koch himself, whom I've already described, and Ralph Eugene Meatyard, and they meet in 1954. That is the same year that a 17-year-old uh, Robert C. May joins the camera club. And though his pictures don't become sort of formally daring and experimental until the middle part of the 1960s, he was a very active member of the club. In fact, there was a club within the club in 1955 and, and early 1956. Van Deren Koch took the most promising members of the club and gave them individual instruction at his house. That included May, that included Meatyard, that included Zygmunt Gerlach, who was a radiologist by trade and who, throughout the course of the two decades that are surveyed here, began making increasingly strange and experimental pictures using his X-ray equipment. Yeah, why don't we pick out one or two of those, and we'll have images of them on manpodcast.com. But these are, but the Gearlock pictures are, I don't know, kind of inconceivable. I mean, there's certainly very little else like them going on at the time, let alone outside Lexington. It's true. I'll take two Zygmunt Gearlock pictures as examples. I mentioned earlier that Van Koch was a fan of Edward Weston and had met Weston. And in my exhibition is a an X-ray 
image of uh, a bell pepper, which I assume, or a, I would hazard a guess, is perhaps a reference to Weston's famous 1930 picture of a red bell pepper. It is sort of cut in half, and you can see all the seeds on the inside. It looks maybe also a little bit like a, a photogram that was made using an X-ray machine. By the 1960s, however, Gearlock is using the calibration equipment that's used to make sure that X-rays are accurate and pushing it in interesting directions. He's misusing it, in fact, to create all-over patterns that look to him like spider's eyes. Uh, they're, they're abstract kind of mandalas. They have a moiré print feel to them. And they also remind me very much of Bridget Riley and the emerging op art movement of the 1960s. I can't be sure that Gearlock was familiar with uh, these trends in painting and other arts, but I have to assume, based on a certain baseline sophistication and cosmopolitan in these men's letters and in the surviving histories of their, their art, that they probably were aware of what was going on elsewhere and that these were deliberate references on the part of this man who was again, himself, just a radiologist who deeply loved photography on the side. While we're on Gearlock, one, one other picture. What is going on in peafowl and how did he do it? It's an x-ray of a, Chinese, a seed pod from some sort of Chinese plant, the name of which is escaping me as we speak. But to him, it looked like uh, a peacock in the sense that there's a sort of central form of this seed and then uh, some sort of leaf or other structure that's radiating outward and looks looked to him like the wings of a, of a peacock in its sort of delicate fretwork of lines. It's, it's completely nuts. We'll have an image of that on the website as well. I should interrupt briefly just to say that because there's not a lot of documentation about the processes these artists use to create their photographs, and I'm not a, a, a photographer by training, I've inferred some of their processes from the final prints. I've talked to colleagues, I've talked to friends, but there still remain mysteries in how exactly some of these pictures came into being. It was one of the pleasures of this show to try and un untangle that. You also mentioned Cranston Ritchie a moment ago. Who was he? How did he come to the thing? So Cranston Ritchie is, to my mind, the greatest revelation of this project. And the person that I hope readers of the book and visitors to the exhibition kind of come away with a knowledge of and, and an, perhaps an admiration for. He served in World War II, uh, settled down in Lexington uh, after the war with his wife and began working, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as a machine operator at a printing company. He picked up a camera sometime in the mid-1950s, 1954, 55, 56, and joined the club in 1956. He is famous, perhaps uh, infamous, as the subject of a well-known Ralph Eugene Meatyard photograph. It depicts him standing in front of a wall alongside a mirror and a dressmaker's form. And of course, his identifying characteristic at this point is that he has a prosthetic limb for an arm because he had lost that arm to cancer. The cancer would take his life the day after Christmas in 1961, cutting short his photographic career. He really only pursued photography as an artist for about five years. It was always in the context of the camera club and always under the mentorship informal mentorship of Meat Yard. But in those five years, he went through many styles of photography and became radically experimental. I think more so than many of the figures in the camera club, he learned how to see the world the way a camera sees it. And he brought back pictures that are unique to what a camera can reveal. Uh, my favorite picture, perhaps in the entire exhibition, is a photograph that he took of ground ties, these little steel wires that stick into the ground and you, you tie up your horse. 
uh, but he photographed them from above in a kind of harsh daylight. And the, the lines, the bent and looping lines of these steel ties get merged with their shadows and also the cracks in the dry earth. And so you get something of an abstract sort of painterly composition that, of course, if you were just looking at it with your own eyes, would uh, resolve into something with color and three-dimensional space, and it wouldn't be as kind of optically confusing as the picture itself is. When he died, Meatyard endeavored to take his entire archives and deposit it at the University of Louisville, not too far down the road, where it laid fallow for 10 years. There was a kind of memorial exhibition for him in 1971, and then has hardly been touched since. The University of Louisville did present last summer a small exhibition of prints from their archives, but otherwise nobody has touched this material and nobody knows who he is, aside from being the subject of this well-known meat yard photograph. You know, in an effort to kind of make a point about intentionality, that, that these guys aren't just hobbyists shooting willy-nilly, that there is an understanding of a lot more than I think the art world tends to want to give Kentuckians credit for. There are two pictures um, in the book, plates 35 and 36. They're both Richie's. One is, is called, I mean, both pictures are untitled. One is known as Cracked Window Covered by Tape. The other is Shadows on Rock. Both date to the late 1950s or so. What do these two pictures kind of reveal about the way Richie thought through pictures, making pictures? It's interesting. They were located in probably boxes that were 10 or 11 boxes apart. And so I've brought them together myself, assuming that Richie would have done so him, himself when printing the images in the 1950s. They both have a, they have a formal similarity. And what's interesting about the one that has a, a cracked window covered by tape is that it, it stands in, of course, for the frame of the picture, the glass of the picture frame. Uh, it is flat. There's no real depth to the picture. It is something that pushes up against the surface and feels not quite like a, a trompe l'oeil effect, but uh, something along those lines. He's definitely playing with how people look at pictures and whether you see them as a window into a world or a slice taken out of it. And I think that the fact that he found a similar composition in the shadows of a branch or a series of branches on a stone, perhaps at an entirely different time. A cracked stone. <laughs> a cracked stone, true. It demonstrates to me that you know he's he's looking for particular forms. He's pre-visualizing, to use a, a mid-20th century photography term, he's pre-visualizing the finished picture as he's looking through the lens, as he's going through the world trying to figure out how he wants to represent it photographically. So eventually Van Deren Koch literally leaves town and goes on to the career we, we now know he had. Who ascends to more or less his leadership role? It's, it's Meatyard himself. I think Meatyard blossomed as an artist underneath Van Deren Koch with Van Deren Koch's friendship and guidance and uh, kind of Van Deren Koch's introduction to the wider world of photography. Meatyard in turn, felt a responsibility to the club members and to the community he was part of to take on that role himself. And so, in a way, akin to how Coke had private, you know, lessons for the more adventuresome members of the club in his house, Meatyard did the same thing. And he took on a more public role, especially as the 1960s wore on. There are many tales from the two surviving club members of the original incarnation of the club. Uh, one is a photographer named Guy Mendez, who's included in the show, and one is Charles Traub, who's also included in the show and is uh, today 
a respected photographer and the head of the School of Visual Arts Photography Department. Many stories from those two and others about Meat Yard really taking them under their wing, uh, under his wing, and, and showing them how to see the world uh, in the strange and compelling way that Meat Yard himself did. They had to work through his influence, but in doing so, they came to their own particular artistic styles and visions. Meat Yard was in dialogue with uh, photographers from around the country. He had ambitions for his own work. He was exhibiting widely during his lifetime. And in fact, in the tail end of his, at the tail end of his life, and also in the life of the Lexington Camera Club, he organized large exhibitions in 1968, 1970, and 1972 that paired photographs by Camera Club members with photographs from leading photographers stationed at universities across the country and their students. So he would write to Robert Heineken at UCLA and say, send me some of your latest pictures and those of your best students. Or he would write to Arnold Gassan at Ohio University, or he would write to someone at MIT, or he would write to, he'd write to Art Sinzabaugh at the University of Illinois and, and gather these prints together and try to contextualize the camera club's efforts in the, in the milieu of the leading photographers and their most advanced students of the day. We've been kind of glossing over Meat Yard himself in part because he's pretty well known, in part because kind of the whole point of the exhibition is to get past him, get beyond him, and, and, and not, not make him the whole place. But how did these men, over the course of you know a couple decades, contribute to Meat Yard's own development? What do you think his association with them did for, for Meat Yard himself? The meat year that we've come to know through our history and through the four or so retrospectives devoted to his work uh, since he died in 1972 is one that perhaps, in, in my opinion, overemphasizes pictures of his children and the masks that they wore and the kind of Southern Gothic strangeness of his vision. And so what I have put together, the meat yard photographs that I have placed in the show, give, I hope, a slightly more well-rounded picture of what his photographic activities entailed. And I think that part of the reason that he's more well-rounded than we know is because he was indeed in dialogue with all these other photographers, not only Cope, but then the ones who were working under him. And, and they kind of, I think, had a friendly competition to develop unique techniques. When Cranston Ritchie died in 1961, part of the, the sadness of the event is not only the loss of their friend and, and, and peer, but also you know, he took with him some of the special techniques that he had invented to make the, the stranger and more experimental pictures that he took. So these guys were going out into the world and trying to sort of show off for each other, to invent new styles, new techniques, new ways of experimenting with the camera that perhaps Meat Yard might not have endeavored to do with quite as much rigor or, or quite as often if he didn't have that friendly camaraderie and competition. And finally, because I don't want to leave Meat Yard out entirely and, and to the point you just made, what is the Unforeseen Wilderness? The Unforeseen Wilderness is one of two multi-year projects that Meat Yard endeavored to undertake during the last years of his life when he was uh, sick with cancer. The other is the family album of Lucy Bell Crater, which has been studied and exhibited fairly often. There's a, there's a book from about 2002 by James Rem uh, that treats that, that series of pictures alone. Unforeseen Wilderness has been uh, published was published as a book in 1971 by the University of Kentucky Press, and it was a collaboration with the writer, critic, and farmer Wendell Berry, who is one of the non-photography figures affiliated with this group. They were all friends. 
And who plays a much larger role in your essay than he's playing in our conversation. <laughs> That's true. Barry is a remarkable writer and also a, a critic of the of anything that would sort of degrade the environment around Kentucky. And in particular, there is the Red River Gorge, not too far from Lexington, which is a, a beautiful landscape that was under threat from the Army Corps of Engineers. They were, uh, at the time, proposing to build a dam that would uh, utterly change the environmental characteristic of the region. And this project, Unforeseen Wilderness, was an attempt by Rafi Dean Meatyard through photography and Wendell Berry through writing to advocate on behalf of the environment as it then stood. It doesn't mean that they are beautiful, sylvan, you know, uh, vistas uh, of, a, of a welcoming landscape. Uh, in fact, the pictures, and there's a sequence of about 56 of them, are incredibly tough and unsentimental. It is indeed a wilderness. And they spent together uh, uh, several years going on regular hikes through the gorge, in the water, up the hills, around the trees, as Wendell Berry was making notes in his notebook toward his essays, and Meat Yard was taking the photographs that have, I don't believe, I'm, I'm pretty sure they've never been exhibited in their entirety. And certainly the book, though it has gone through a couple of editions, has not received wide acclaim. Um, but you can think of it as akin to you know, Dorothea Lange's collaborations with uh, Taylor, with her husband, and, and or even something like uh, A.G. and Walker Evans. It's a it's a writer photographer collab collaboration attempting to come to grips with a particular place and the in this case political and environmental uh, considerations of that place. Long tradition of this in American history, going back to the 1860s, when Carlton Watkins teams up with Josiah Whitney and William Brewer on on the Yosemite book, kind of the first American mashup of, of art photography and, and a specific geography. Yeah, and it's it's a, a wonderful project even and to read now it, it's just wonderful to sort of look back and see uh, how forward-thinking Wendell Berry was. We, we now recognize him as a kind of cultural icon for his ethic of land stewardship um, but they were really working against the grain of common sense and common knowledge at the time and uh, the rhetoric the, the, the rhetoric they employed is is, is very powerful. Eventually, decades later, some congressional legislation was passed that protected the gorge and the dam that was being discussed during the late 1960s when these men began the project it never came to be. Brian Scholes, thanks so much. It was a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for your interest in the exhibition. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.